You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Tom Lovejoy, he's a senior fellow uh, dealing with biodiversity and environmental science, uh, senior fellow of the United Nations Foundation. So, Tom, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Just fine, thanks. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I can see from your bio, you've been, uh, you know, for well, 40 some odd years, you've been involved in uh, giving a prize to biodiversity and, uh, and things like that. So, what what got you uh, what got you involved initially in uh, caring about biodiversity and issues like this in environmental science uh so you know i I was just a kid that liked animals and I uh, ended up taking a biology course I thought to get the subject over with when i was i, I would guess I was uh fourteen and uh, I just got totally turned on to the variety of life. Uh, and have never been able to get enough. So, what um, what kinds of activities have you been involved in? Have you, uh, you know, have you been involved in surveys looking at, you know, life across the planet or specific regional issues as it pertains to wildlife or you know, what kinds of well, things? Well, you, you know, on? basically, uh, you know, back when I was in graduate school, uh, you know, the environmental imperative was not quite so obvious and. Uh, so I, I basically thought I'd have a great career just having scientific adventures, uh, and that is in fact, you know, what took me to the Amazon in 1965, uh, and it was a grand adventure. Uh, but then, as time went on, I began to see what was happening to life on Earth, and helped create the science of conservation biology and got engaged uh, through World Wildlife Fund, where I worked for 14 years in leading conservation uh, efforts internationally. Uh, and then, you know, then I went to World Bank, then I went to Smithsonian, uh, always looking to create a better future for life on Earth. So you said you went to the Amazon in 1965. Have you been back since? Or so I have I am always on my way to the Amazon. <laughs> uh so I lived there for two years, uh nineteen sixty seven to sixty nine to actually do my PhD and started working for the World Wildlife Fund in nineteen seventy three and was back in Brazil within a couple of years of doing that. Uh and worked a lot with Brazil on conservation uh and the the major piece of that was in the Amazon, and and then I started a science research project 40 years ago in the central Amazon to to try and understand what happens when you break a forest up into fragments, 
because it's not not really obvious at the moment the fragments are created. But when a fragment is no longer part of a larger system, it basically can't support all the species that are in it at the time it becomes an isolated fragment. So much like a radioactive mineral sheds radioactivity and becomes something simpler, uh, so do forest fragments uh, shed some of their species and become simpler ecosystems. And what scale, so if, um, if there's a forest and, you know, it's a certain size, I don't know, 10 miles by 10 miles, and I start yeah, chopping so it, it, it will, into um, pieces, it, it, it actually will it will depend on the the kind of forest, but I think probably for Amazonian forests, you need a minimum size of something like a thousand square kilometers, which sounds really big, but it isn't in uh, the Amazon because the Amazon itself is as big as the 48 U.S. states. And one of the really wow. encouraging encouraging things is once I started all that research. Most of the protected areas uh, in the Amazon have been at least that size or larger. In um, okay, so a thousand square kilometers. So that's what. Uh, that's, what would uh, that be that, in miles? So that would be a um, hundred kilometers on a side. So um, no, it's more like three hundred and thirty-three kilometers on a side. Okay. So um, anyway, but but uh, I was going to translate it into. Two acres for you. So a thousand square kilometers is a uh, hundred thousand hectares, uh, and that's sort of like two hundred fifty thousand acres. Oh wow! What's been observed to happen when you have a chunk that's smaller than that? So in this research we did, um, we we were able to we were able to show that a that a hundred hectare fragment, like two hundred fifty acres loses half of the forest interior bird species in less than 15 years. And so that's pretty dramatic, right? Yeah. And basically all those bird species don't like to go out into sunlight. Uh, so oh. they're there with populations initially, which are too small or their food supply is inadequate or whatever. Oh, so there's not enough resilience in a given system if it's too small. Maybe there's just not enough range for certain creatures to move. It changes probably, yeah. I guess, density yeah, so, patterns and food availability and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and some of these species are actually quite uh, rare, so you might only get one pair per uh, thousand hectares. And so they're either in that initial fragment or they're not even there. Mm, I gotcha. So, well, and if, if, yeah, and if they needed more than 100 hectares but happened to be in a, in the fragment when it was created... Uh, they just don't have the resources to support themselves over time. Yeah. Well, I hate to ask you, but uh, when was the most recent time you went to the Amazon and observed it, and how much has it changed? How has it changed since the 60s? Yeah, so the last time I was there was in July, and I'll go again in a couple of weeks and again in November and again at the end of the year. Uh, so when I first started, uh, there was only 3% of the Amazon was deforested. Uh, today, the Brazilian portion of it is close to 20% deforested, and that's very worrisome because the Amazon makes half of its own rain, and if there's not enough rain, you don't get a rainforest. Uh, you get more of a grassland vegetation, 
So at the moment, the Amazon is very close to a tipping point, which would change the forests in the south and the east and maybe part of the central Amazon uh, to some kind of a grassland. Oh, wow. Hmm. So <clears throat> the Amazon is, is deforested, you said the Brazil portion, like 20 some odd percent. But is that an even deforestation or is it made it into a patchwork of two small fragments? Uh, so it varies. Some places it's pretty extensive. Uh, other places it's uh, spontaneous colonization along highways uh, or things like that. Uh, but you tend to get a progression uh, you know, from the initial small clearings to a lot of clearings to extensive cleared areas, uh, unless, as it happens in certain instances, those areas are abandoned, uh, and then you get some kind of second growth coming back. <clears throat> so it, it, it's dynamic, but uh, it's, it, it's very close to the tipping point. We think we see the initial flickerings because there are unprecedented droughts like every five years now. Oh, wow. So what does that tell you uh, are the best ways to fix the problem? Is it link up areas that are separated? Is it change, you know, like maybe if you assume deforestation at some level is going to happen regardless, can that be allowed to happen but change the dynamic or the method of it, um, maybe to make it less impactful? I mean, what are, what are some of the learnings so, you've gotten from all this? So, so the first thing you want to do is back off from the tipping point. And the most important thing that can be done to do that is to do some reforestation. And Brazil actually made commitments at Paris about reforestation. So if you concentrated some of that in the Amazon, uh, you could have back off of the tipping point. And then the rest of the landscape, it would be smart to essentially build as many connections between forest fragments uh, as you possibly can. Okay, so has there been any test or observation of if you have <clears throat> two forest fragments and you connect them, you know, what does the connection have to look like? Does it have to be a very wide connection, a certain shape? Does it have to be multiple connections in order for them to be able to act as one and, you know, preserve themselves? So, in fact, there was a recent paper out this week in Science, which I haven't had a time, time to read yet, about uh, the benefits of reestablishing connections. Uh, but basically, uh, first of all, you would want to have vegetation along the edge of water courses and prevent soil erosion uh, and protect water quality. And that's an easy way to put a lot of connections back in the natural landscape. Uh, and then basically the rest of it is looking at a particular landscape, looking where the opportunities for restoring connections uh, uh, are most favorable and just going with us. How hard is it? I mean, can you fix an area that has been cleared or is that infinitely harder than to uh, just prevent an area from being cleared? Well, you know, it's, it's always easier to prevent than fix. I mean, it's a little like, you know, not trying to put the toothpaste back in the test in the toothpaste tube. Uh, but it can be done. Uh, a lot depends on what has actually happened to the land. So if there has been extensive use of fire, uh, the natural succession uh, is much less favorable to 
restoring something which is species rich like a typical tropical rainforest. Uh, if there has not been extensive use of fire, you get a different vegetation succession, which basically mimics what happens in tree fall areas in the forest. Uh, so you get a lot of fast growing things that grow up and they create shade, which creates opportunities for the big seeded uh, forest canopy species uh, to move, to get started in the shade. Is there a way to partially work on a cleared area? I mean, so if we want to fix an area, can you do a partial work on it and then nature takes its course and finishes it? Or do you have to go all the way and shepherd a given area until it's 100% back to normal? Well, it's a really good question. And uh, it it depends on how big the cleared area is and how severe the the impact was on the clear, cleared area. Uh, but basically speaking, you know, if if... The, the clearing has been done without fire, uh, and it's a, not a very big clearing. It pretty much can recover on its own. Uh, if it's a bigger clearing, it takes a much longer time, and that's because the forest canopy tree species generally have very large seeds, and that requires in nature uh, for a small mammal to actually move it and bury it somewhere, hoping to come back and then forgetting. Uh, so in, in the bigger clearings, you, you don't really have that kind of ecosystem service from forest rodents or primates or whatever it might be. Uh, but, uh, you know, Rio de Janeiro has the largest urban forest in the world, and that was reforested in the middle of the 19th century because the Emperor of Brazil was really concerned about the Rio watershed. Uh, and although there were some trees involved in that restoration, which were not native species, uh, basically the Tijuca forest, which is its name, uh, is a very healthy tropical forest. Okay. Um, if you have a given cleared area, um, I don't know, what, what, what would be a a better way to fix it versus another. I mean, would you start? Let's say I'm just gonna, I'm just picturing like a big square that's cleared. Would you start to fix things in the middle or on the edges and have them creep in? You have to fix everywhere. Like, you know, have we learned any ways to optimize reforestation? Are there any methods? Well, assuming there wasn't a a big effect of fire in the history, um, if it's a small area, can you can basically let the forest do it at its own pace. If it's a really large area, probably the most important thing to do is uh, plant a few key kinds of trees out in the in the middle, uh, which would attract birds, uh, and birds often bring seeds with them. Um, and so, basically, you know, big clearings it really helps to have some human intervention. Uh, and it just hastens the whole process. Yeah, I don't know if there's, you know, testing of different methods on uh, reforestation and if any have been found to be, uh, you know, somehow maybe take, uh, I don't know, like you said, if uh, if an area is below a critical threshold of size that falls apart, is there a way to take a clearing and to segment the clearing so that it falls below a critical threshold of size and the cleared spots 
I'm more likely to be, you know, assimilated into a whole, a reforested whole, I guess is what I can say. Yeah, so, so if you think about this in analogy to a tree fall gap in a forest, uh, tree fall gaps just repair themselves automatically uh, by mm. the biology of the forest. A small clearing uh, will act similarly to a tree fall gap, but it will take you know, it'll take much longer, uh, but it will get there. But say something that's over 100 hectares in size as a clearing will actually be very slow unless you you have human engagement and getting some key tree species started out in the middle. So it sounds like there's an order to do reforestation, like a recipe. First seems to be you know, get some clumps of trees that are high enough to first provide shade and also provide nesting for birds because they're carriers of seeds. You know, are there any other steps to the recipe that have been identified in order to speed the recovery of areas? So I would think um, unless you unless you want to have workers, you know, trying to fill the the role of the small rodents that distribute the big big seeded uh, fruits of the of the forest canopy species. Uh, you basically uh, uh, want to create a situation that makes it easy for those kinds of species to begin to come in from the surrounding areas, uh, and and basically you you you'll get a reasonable forest uh, eventually. Uh, and uh, but if you don't if you don't have the animal seed dispersers, you're going to have to substitute people. Okay. Is there any uh, use or rationale of having like a contest, you know, a given area that has been cleared and given groups to compete on finding the best and fastest way to fix that area? Perhaps that would lead to some innovations on how to, you know, fight back against these problems. Well, actually, I mean, that's a really interesting idea um, because I think there is a lot to be learned about how to how to do this reforestation and and the various pathways, natural pathways, which could get you there. Um, so having a bunch of essentially experiments, uh, different experiments could tell you a lot about, you know, better ways to, to go at the exercise. Yeah, maybe an area that, uh, you know, that could be sponsored by some organization and again, it'd be a competition area, but the outcome would be beneficial probably regardless, but uh, people could try all kinds of stuff. You know, given that an area is blighted anyway, why not? Yeah, so it's you know, it's it's not like a, a temperate forest in the northeast, say, where it will pretty much uh recover on its own over time. Uh if it's a big cleared area, you really need human assistance to hasten the whole process. Yeah. Makes sense. So what uh, what are some of the major initiatives that you're working on right now? What seems to be like the most important things to well, you know, I'm really spending a lot of time trying to make sure that this this notion of the Amazon tipping point uh, is out there uh, and hopefully leads to policy change in a positive kind of way. Uh, but I also, on a much grander scale, uh, am trying to promote the the idea of just restoration of ecosystems, uh, natural ecosystems around the world as an, an important way to pull carbon back out of the atmosphere. 
uh, because a, a lot of the excess carbon in the atmosphere actually comes from destroyed and degraded ecosystems. Uh, of course, there's a lot from burning old ecosystems, which is what fossil fuels are. Uh, but we have lots of areas of the planet which are deforested or have degraded grazing lands or degraded agricultural lands, uh, degraded coastal wetlands, all of which, uh, if restored, will pull significant amounts of carbon back out of the atmosphere and give us lots of other benefits uh, uh, as well. <clears throat> and basically, the planet works as a linked physical and biological system. And if we essentially give the biological elements uh, a chance and some assistance, uh, this could be a really important way to avoid some of the worst climate change that otherwise might occur. How much of the Amazon, for instance, is controlled by the nation of Brazil? How much of the Amazon is? Within the purview of the country of Brazil. Oh, okay. Uh, Brazil has 60% of the Amazon. Okay. And then what? And, the, the, and then, what there is, are eight, then there are eight other countries that have the rest of it. What is Brazil saying? Help us. We can't do this on our own. Or, you know, we want to be a first world country just like you. So we're going to continue clearing. Like, what, what's the conversation been like with Brazil and the other players? So, I mean, the really interesting thing is that until the current administration in Brazil, uh, since Essentially, 1990, Brazil has been a global leader on sustainability and environment. And they hosted the first Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio. They held Rio Plus 20, 20 years later. Uh, and basically, half the Brazilian Amazon is in, in either formal designated um, uh, conservation areas or in demarcated indigenous reserves. And all almost all of that has been done since 1990. It's a remarkable achievement. Uh, the current leadership uh, is oblivious to all of that, uh, tends to view uh, the forest as an obstacle to progress, uh, and basically is, is a really very destructive outlook. So the good news is there are other Amazon countries who, like Colombia, uh, which have a much more uh, progressive, uh, sustainable vision. There are governors in the Amazon who who really understand the issues, uh, you know, embrace the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. Uh, so you know, it's it's a mosaic at the moment. Uh, but it's not all all bad by any means. Well, well, yeah, what, what will happen if uh, the Amazon goes over a tipping point? What will be the fallout? So if the tipping point occurs, uh, there will be a loss of a significant portion of global biodiversity. Uh, there will be a huge amount of carbon going up into the atmosphere, making climate change worse. Uh, there will be serious impacts on the well-being of the people who live in those parts of the Amazon. Uh, and even in addition, uh, because the, the hydrological system of the Amazon uh, actually is linked to South America's climate system overall and provides moisture as far, as, far south as northern Argentina, uh, 
there, there, there will be serious climatic changes. Will it affect uh, Brazil and the adjacent countries or the, the countries that include the Amazon more than other countries, or it'll kind of be an even effect across the whole globe? Uh, no, it won't be even. So the the uh, the biggest impact, of course, will be in the dieback dieback areas, uh, which are all in Brazil. Will mean less moisture for for agriculture in central Brazil, uh, and less less rainfall to the south, including uh, southern Brazil, the Paraguay, Uruguay, and even northern Argentina. Uh, and there probably are connections in terms of the global climate system that I think are understood less well, but it will be uh, uh, very disruptive. For the countries of the Western Amazon, which basically get more rain, uh, they're going to get less water because less moisture will be making it uh, westward across the basin. So is there, what's the dynamic between um, Brazil and the other countries that you know, comprise the Amazon? Is there a conversation there? Is Brazil like, you know, to hell with you? I mean, what's, what do you see there and can that be leveraged in some way? Well, about two weeks ago, the president of Colombia hosted all the Amazon heads of state at Leticia in the Colombian Amazon, uh, basically to start a conversation amongst all of those nations about a path to sustainability. Uh, and so it, that was just the beginning, but it's very good to have it change from a discussion between Brazil and the rest of the world to a conversation among the Brazilian nations and holds out the possibility, as was done once before, that there may be some multilateral organization like the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, which could put together a program uh, to restore a sustainable trajectory for the Amazon basin as a whole. Okay. I, just, I guess, uh, you know, there's maps and maps and maps and maps of the Amazon and how best to uh, keep it from falling apart. There's political maps. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of uh, interactions here that need to be looked at. Yeah, it's so I, mean, I, I find it very encouraging that there is there is now this conversation amongst the Amazon nations. Uh, and I, you know, I was with a couple of the Brazilian Amazon state governors this past week in New York, uh, and um, and they're very interested in sustainability as well. So I'm hoping all of this will become a much better conversation. Definitely. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more and to reach out and get in touch with the, you know, with you or the causes that you're working on? Yeah. So I think maybe the best thing to do is just to. Google the Amazon Biodiversity Center, uh, and that will immediately take you to a website and various connections. Uh, but you know, the center is not the only organization working on on this challenge, and so organizations like the World Wildlife Fund or Conservation International, or uh, even the New York Botanical Garden, uh, et cetera, are engaged. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I, um, you know, Tom, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.